Thank you for tuning in to the best parenting show on the internet. Post Daily Dose. Hey there, Post Institute. This is Christy Saul, the co-founder, coming at you live with the best little parenting show on the internet. I hope you guys have had an incredible day and that you are getting ready to enjoy a beautiful evening. I want to plug these two books real quick while people are signing in. Uh, from Fear to Love that you can get on, you can get it on our website, you can get it on Amazon, but if you want to get the best deal, then you want to go to feartolovebook.com, that's where you can pick this up on promotion, and uh, then also Brian's book, The Great Behavior Breakdown, you can pick this up at, uh, hey Leslie, so good to see you love, mwah, 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 mwah. You can pick this book up on Amazon or at postinstitute.com. And then we've got our workbook, the Fear to Love workbook, which is an incredible, oh my God, that's so good, so good, so good. We have it as ebook currently on our website. You can get it on Amazon in the print version. Man, you guys are sending me those hearts. Woo, that just feels so good. Thank you so much for edifying me and building me up. I love the way that feels. My goodness, my goodness, my goodness. Whew, who knew I was so easy to just uplift? That is so great. Hey, Lisa, great to see you. Um, so the workbook, you can get in print on Amazon. On our website, we have it on ebook currently, but soon and very, very soon, I will have printed copies that we'll be able to ship out straight to you. We'll put together a little bundle. So thank you guys for joining me this evening. Um, I had somebody write in with what I thought was just a beautiful, she just shared beautifully about, um, you know, trying to move it. Hey, Debbie, so good to see you too. Ah, tell Steve I said hello. Um, so the question, what she shared was, how they try really hard to step outside of the paradigm of consequences and rewards, but then they just kind of, you know, slide back into it. And she talked specifically about, sorry, I'm having some problems with my chair here. She spoke specifically about, hey Pam, um, about um, how, uh, especially with chores, they slide back, they slide back in because they're having a hard time getting their kids motivated to do chores. Um, and so she explained that, you know, they'll go back and forth from do giving allowance for doing chores and that motivates for about a month. And then, um, oh, my battery's low. So while I'm talking, I'm going to plug in. Sorry, you guys. Welcome to the real world of Christy Saul. <laughs> We're just going to get this figured out. There we go. That should do the trick. Um, so, and she was, and that's just such a common thing, right? Like we try, we try it. We try like, okay, I'll give you an allowance for it. And that works for about a month. And then, you know, they, they lose interest in that too, because they're not, we got to find other ways to motivate. Um, we got to, we got to get underneath the surface a little bit more. And then there was a, another part to her question. And that part of the question was, and how do you teach about, the value of money. So if you're not paying them to do chores, how do you teach about the value of money? So uh, there's a, it's rich, isn't it? So I actually, I had, I had completely forgotten. I completely forgotten that in the Great Behavior Breakdown, um, there's a segment that talks about chores. In fact, uh, it's chapter five, aggression, defiance, and chores. 
Um, on the website, we have this book put together with, we call it the Great Behavior Breakdown Bundle. And it has this book. It has a very simple workbook. So not as good a workbook as this one. I'll just be honest, as the Fear to Love one. But it, it's a good workbook. And then it also comes with digital recordings. Um, it's, uh, gosh, when we first did it, it was literally 13 CDs addressing 27 different behaviors. It's now all digital. So in digital format, we have um, these audios that you can download and listen to that Brian goes through literally 27 different behaviors that are very common for children who come from tough places. And he talks about the root challenge um, and he talks about solutions and a lens that we can use to understand. So I pulled out the book and I, I read through that, the part about chores and everything we've talked about. I just feel like I'm brilliant. No, I probably remembered what I read a long time ago. I just didn't realize where I remembered it from. But what he reminds us in here is, um, first of all, we can assign a chore. This I thought this was beautifully said. He said, you can assign a chore based on chronological age. For example, if you have an eight-year-old, your chore, then you give that eight-year-old the chore of washing the car every Saturday. Um, you can choose a chore based on chronological age, but your expectations, ooh, that's a good one, your expectations for how they do the chore has to be based on their emotional age that's presented at the time. You could give someone, you could give a three-year-old the chore of painting their bedroom, but you better expect, you know, a three-year-old result, right? You could give, you could assign just about anything as a chore, but the expectation of how it's going to get done needs to be through the lens of what their chronological, of what their emotional age is at the time. And that varies when we stress, we regress. So depending, and so, oh, well, let's just go ahead and read a little bit more about, about that because he kind of goes into that. Um, he talks a little bit about um, things for us to think about. Um, let's see. The first question you must ask yourself is, are my expectations for chores in line with my child's emotional age? But this is just the first piece of the puzzle. The child may still go into overwhelm and threat when asked to do chores. So the next question to ask yourself is, what is my reaction when the child becomes defiant? Chances are you move into, a, into stress as well. well. Yeah, of course. That would just be natural. I mean, it'd be hard to stay 100% calm, have no like little, even, you know, it, it may not be that you get a complete amygdala hijack where you're just completely overwhelmed, but there's going to be a stress response. There's going to be some bubbles. That's, that's going to happen. Um, so what do you do? What, what's your response when the child becomes defiant? Chances are you move into stress as well. When that happens, you move out of a place of regulation, emotional regulation, which also moves you out of a place of understanding. From that place, you can't begin to comprehend the overwhelming negative messages that the child receives when you simply say, turn off the TV and go upstairs and make your bed. Number one, think about the TV going off. And if they are regressed, 
then that also means uh, last night when we were talking, I, saw, I read back through the comments and someone had mentioned my child won't get this because of executive function, functioning issues. When we stress, we regress. Emotional regression also means that our uh, thinking is distorted and confused. Our short-term memory is suppressed and it is difficult for us to be able to have any rationale and logic. For children who come from tough places, when we stress, we regress. And think about the funny, like there's those funny memes that we see. Uh, it's a set of them that if they floated around Facebook for probably three or four years. And it shows the, the two-year-old and younger. And they're like super upset because you won't, that because the man on the TV won't let him have a bite of his hot dog or because you won't let them eat the sucker and then you see a picture of the sucker and it's covered in dog hair or you won't let them eat the dog food out of the dog bowl because little children are very concrete in their thinking and it's hard to believe, but it is truth. When we stress, we regress. And if your child regresses to an emotional place where they're back to that place of very concrete thinking and abstract thinking isn't available to them, they literally will think that when the TV goes off, that it may never come back on again. Wow, that's big, isn't it? I remember when Marley was really little at night when it was time to turn off the TV and get ready to go to bed. We would wait until the show was finished and we would say good night to Barney. Night, night, Barney. We'll see you tomorrow. And we would turn off the TV and we would go to bed because there was something in her that needed the closure. I didn't realize what this is saying, but as I'm reading it, I'm like, wow. Think about all the things that we do to help little ones comprehend the world around them. And so we have to have that same lens on no matter the chronological age of our children because they can dip right into those places so easily. So that was the number one. Number one, think about, you know, what's their perspective in that moment of what's going to happen if, the, if we have to turn the TV off. Number two, think about the transition of moving away from the TV and turning around and going upstairs to make the bed because we know that children who come from tough places, they have a really different, it's like their brains just really get locked in to whatever it is in that moment and to uh, request a transition. And I've seen children struggle with transitioning between a red crayon and a blue crayon. So I know transitions can be really difficult. So then we're asking for this big transition. So that's a big deal. Number three, think about the fear of what may happen during that transition of going upstairs, from upstairs to downstairs. Number four, think about the, the prospect of moving into the upstairs room, looking at the bed and having the thought, what if I don't make up this bed to mom's expectation? What might happen then? There's a lot to this, isn't it? There's a lot that could be going on at the subconscious level when we think we're asking for what seems like an innocuous, innocuous, is that the right word? Innocuous, innocuous, I think. Harmless, a harmless, non-threatening activity. And then all of this stuff really gets activated. Brian says, um, if you have a foster child, the child might, the child's immediate thoughts would probably be, if I don't make up the bed, 
I don't have a home. She won't love me or want me. She'll kick me out of the house. If I, I'm going to go, I'm going to have to go pack my bag and then where am I going to live? All of this I know uh, is illogical. That sounds to an adult. But when you're talking about fear barriers and stress, all of these thoughts become reality in a child's mind in a matter of milliseconds. Boy, that is significant, isn't it? Uh, let's see. I probably should have read the whole thing a little more clearly before I jumped on. I was scan scanning and scanning. One of the things he suggests is things like when the show gets over, so like you notice that your child's in the middle of a show or a YouTube video or whatever, once that show is over to say, come on, hon, let's go upstairs together and make your bed. Come on, son. Come on, daughter. Uh, you grab the bathroom trash and I'll grab the kitchen trash or whatever and we'll go out together to take the trash out. Oh my gosh, just saying that? Wow, that just brought back a really interesting memory because I told you guys the other night I grew up in the country, right? So when I had to take the trash out, sometimes uh, it would be at night and it was scary. Oh my gosh. Oh, I mean, I would put it off and put it off and then it's like I'd have to do it and it would be like the scariest thing in the world to go out there in the dark, <laughs> in the dark, dark to take the trash out. Oh my gosh. Um, I'm thinking about my nephew. That was his job. And for a long time, it was really hard for him to do that because there would be so much fussing around it, like how to do it. Like he's saying, you know, what happens if I don't do it right? Then they're going to come in and correct me. So those things that we talked about in the last couple of nights about how we approach chores with them to make it a relational activity, not an assignment for them to do by themselves. Um, they'll initiate doing it independently when they're ready. I mean, and they might not be ready until they're not even living in your house and that's going to be okay. Um, but for it to be something that you do together is going to be your best bet. Um, and it's not like I'm going to do this and you're going to do that together. It's like, we're both going to wash dishes together. We're going to pick up the living room together. We're going to do this together. We're going to clean your room together. We're going to, you know, so to make them together activities and to know that relationship is really way more important than getting the tasks done. So now I'm going to tell you some stories all around this. Um, when we all had the group home, we had the most success in getting everybody engaged and doing chores together when it was part of the routine of the home, so part of the culture. And so uh, we'd wait till about 11. So what we found in that environment was really interesting. Two o'clock was the sweet spot for everybody being ready to actually go out and do something. And so really no matter what, uh, even if we weren't doing chores, they would have just been laying around the house because for whatever reason, Two o'clock was like the match, the bewitching hour. Like, okay, now we're all ready to go do something. We just needed to lounge around the house for Saturday morning. So we'd let them just chill and lounge around, have a little breakfast, do whatever, kick back until about 11. And then come 11, uh, we put on music 
and everybody just pitch in. You know, we'd all have, uh, we'd have enough adults where we'd be like, somebody be upstairs, somebody be downstairs, and we'd just be all working together, getting things done. And literally within an hour or less, pretty much all the chores would have been taken care of. And so we did it as a group. And so then when new people came in to the group home, because it was the culture, it made it really easy for them to just kind of join into that process. It was like, you know, that's just, this is just what we do. Um, so that made it a whole lot easier for it to just be the culture. Now, um, I did, I forgot when I was telling you about any time I've ever used consequences and rewards, I forgot that there was a brief time when I paid my son to go to school. And here was the reason why. He was uh, at high school age and he really wanted to go to public school. He had not had any of those kinds of experiences in his life to that point. And so um, I wanted him to have, begin to have the understanding of like, when you have a job, you get up and you go to work and you get paid for going to work because he grew up in a different country and then when he got to this country, he was in treatment centers and treatment centers and treatment centers. And then he came into our group home and then he came to be a part of our family. But for a time frame while he was in our group home, I paid him a weekly amount of money based on the number of days he went to school because I wanted him to have that framework of understanding because he had not lived that. He had not experienced that. Which then makes me think of some other families that I've worked with and conversations we've had about stuff like that in general. Meaning, if, you, if you're raising a child who has been institutionalized, that is a significantly different lifestyle than living in a family home. And you really have to wrap your brain around how vastly different it is. But one very baseline difference is children who are raised in treatment settings like group homes and treatment centers, they have not had the experience of having adults in charge of their care who are not paid staff members. That is a very big difference because people who are paid staff members come in for an eight-hour shift. They provide you care. That is their job. And then they go home to do what we're doing now in our home. And that is a massive gap. It is a really big gap. And it takes a lot for that to permeate the being of a person who is coming out of living in institutional setting to trying to live in a family home. I mean, I could just, I mean, maybe that's going to be like a paper that I write or an article I write or a book that I write to help people understand how vastly different it is so that we can have an understanding of what our children need to be able to adjust to living in a family a family setting versus living in an institution setting. You know, um, when you live in an institution, um, if you hit the wall with your hand, you don't end up with a hole in the wall, right? Because most of those 
You know, it's like concrete. They have like plastic furniture. So if you have a meltdown and you pick up the furniture and you throw it, it the piece of furniture isn't going to break. I mean, there's if if it's the if it's the day to clean your room and you live in a treatment center, you usually have a tile floor or you have like no pile carpet and um, a lot of times they just give you a broom and you sweep all your trash out into the hall. So I had a young lady living with us and when she decided on the days, and I, you know, I never told her you gotta clean your room. It was so cool, that's just some days that she would just decide she was ready to clean her room. And she, that's what she would do. She would just sweep it all into the hall because that's what she knew. That's what she knew to do. She didn't know how to use a vacuum cleaner yet. Um, and she, the vacuum cleaner wouldn't have worked in her room because there was so much, so much debris. So she would sweep it into the hall. And that was okay. That's okay with me. So that's, oh man, it's vast, isn't it? It's vast and it's deep. And our children, like I was saying, some of our children have lived in such different cultures than your family home. And it takes a lot for them to get used to the culture of your home. So that's one piece of it. And then the next, and then we start talking about their emotional age and their emotional development and our expectations. We start talking about relationship. We start talking about making it a part of the culture that we do all of this together. And so making it something that you do together as a family that we all pitch in, we all help out. We do it literally together, not like you have this assignment and I have that assignment. Like literally I am in the room with you making your bed together. And if we can do that with a joyful heart, if we can do that, keeping relationship at the forefront, it's a really big deal. Um, she asked about, the other thing that she asked about is teaching the value of money. So I'm going to go and talk about that if you guys don't mind. I know that's going to make tonight go kind of long, but let's go ahead and have that conversation. Um, so I have been known to give allowance just for the sake of giving allowance, not about it being earned, but about the fact that our children need to have opportunities to learn the value of money. So... Um, there's a lot of different ways to do that. Um, I wouldn't start off with a really, uh, like, well, kind of depends on the age, kind of depends on your family structure, kind of depends on your socioeconomic status. I mean, there's just a lot of different things to filter in that. So there's, you know, there's things that you watch and learn. So, um, from what I gathered in this scenario, allowance was being given once a month. And it would be gone very quickly. Um, so when you see that happen, then what I would do with that is I would break it down into being paid once a week. So I would give allowance once a week. And then I would probably look at, um, yeah, a lot of times what people do when they first start getting allowance or having their own money is it literally does go on quote unquote junk, you know, just junk. Like, And then you kind of wear yourself out. Like we kind of wear ourselves out of buying junk. And so it's kind of like, there's kind of a self extinguishing piece in this where at some point, oftentimes they'll be like, okay, I'm over that phase. And now I've got my eye on something more. So the other piece is as parents, 
we have to think about what our boundaries are in terms of purchasing for our children once they start getting their own allowance. Because if we want to invite them to save, then there's certain things that we want them to put on their wish lists that we don't, we don't buy. That we let them and we support them and we encourage them in that, in that process. Uh, with my daughter in particular, I started giving her allowance at an age that for a lot of children in our world would be kind of young. And part of the reason was because I got tired of being mama, 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 mama. I don't want to make every decision about whether or not we're buying something or not. And so it became time. That was the trigger for me that it was time for her to start having her own money so that she could be part of that decision making process. And it was a really cool process that we went through. It was not always easy. I can remember the very first buyer's remorse experience that she had. And she like had a huge meltdown because she bought a game and then realized she didn't really want the game and she didn't like the game. And now I've got this game and I don't like it. I'm not going to have any more money to buy another game. So we worked through that. Thank goodness she was able to return the game and get her money back and so she had a that was a big learning experience for her um shopping days and not buying days um are something that we taught that i taught right around that same time a shopping day is a day where nobody buys anything not even me we just go look it's a good time it's a good thing to do when you just don't really have like a lot of things you need to do it's a very good teaching process we're going to go look, we're going to take pictures, we're going to come back and compare and decide what it is we might actually want to spend our money on. So we all go and we all, and what that teaches is impulse control. And you know, the things that I'm sitting here talking about, there are lots of adults who haven't grown that piece. They haven't grown impulse control yet. They haven't grown the ability to make their money stretch till the end of the month. And so... Um, it's all very interesting to think about, isn't it? And then, I mean, honestly, there are some people who are, you know, they're out there and they're employed, but the wage that they earn is literally not enough to last for an entire month and pay their utilities and their bills and their rent. And so there's a lot, it's, it's pretty complex, isn't it? To just think about all of that in the big picture. But it, so let's say you start with, a, you know, giving them allowance once a month and you realize, okay, well, that's gone really quick. Then you need to back it off because it just tells you that they're just not ready for that yet. They're not ready. They don't have that amount of impulse control yet. The impulse control, self-control for people who are biblical. I just want to remind you that self-control is not something we are born with and it's not really part of our flesh. It is a gift. So, I mean, it's literally called like a gift of the spirit, right? So to, that, to me, that tells us that it doesn't just come easily, that impulse control, self-control are things that take a lot of maturity. And so we want to try to set them up for as much success as possible. So, and it may be that, okay, so even at a week, by the weekend, they're out of money. So then you just start breaking it down to what can they handle, you know? And so if you're, if the, Debbie said, fruit of the spirit. Thank you, because you guys know, I'm, forgive me. <laughs> forgive me for misquoting. Forgive me for not knowing um, as well as, as I should know. I'm still learning. But to me, that says a lot that in a, a book that, has, <laughs> that is as read 
and as followed as the Bible and as that faith goes, that self-control is considered a fruit of the Spirit. It's not just something that us as humans in our fleshly ways come by easily. So it does. It takes a lot of maturity. Having self-control, having impulse control takes a lot of maturity. Having, having shopping days but not buying days are really good ways to train ourselves in a way that just because we see something, we don't have to buy it. That it's okay to wait. It's okay to hold back. It's okay to save. You know, it's okay to have discernment. It's okay to come back home when we're not in an environment. And see, I, these are things that I actually talk to my children about. It's like, you know, don't you know that marketing does everything in the world to try to get your money? I mean, that's what they're all about because they're trying to make a living. That's just okay. That's the way it is. But we have to have wisdom enough to be able to be like, okay, I need to not make a purchase in this environment because I can feel my brain is like, woohoo, we're in party town, right? And so that's when, I, when my brain's like, oh yeah, I'm in party town. That is the last time I need to buy. That is absolutely the time that I need to just go, okay, well, that's all very interesting. I'm going to take a lot of pictures and then I'm going to go back someplace where I can quietly look at my finances and look at these different decisions to make so that I can make a decision about how to spend my money with a calm, clear mind, with a calm, clear thinking. So um, I feel like those are all, like there's like a lot of different little things that you can grab out of this for teachable experiences with regards to the value of money. Um, yeah, that whole, like, there's definitely a phase when children first start getting allowance where they do, like, just, you know, they'll spend it all on just whatever. But that does tend to extinguish itself. And then they'll start, also, they'll start having, like, more expensive taste just because they mature. They'll shift from wanting these things to wanting these other things. And that's just part of how children grow and develop. Now, everything I just said, then put the lens on of knowing that emotional age drives more of this than chronological age. So it's okay if you have a 14-year-old who's getting allowance and they spend it on things that you think of as junk and other 14-year-olds are able to save their money and spend their money on and save it up to buy something that's more expensive. Your child will get there. The gap between the chronological age and the emotional age over time, it does, the gap gets smaller and smaller. So have confidence that they're going to get there. There's going to come a point where they're able to understand it better and better. Um, but we have to give them, we have to give them opportunities to learn and opportunities to try and even opportunities to fail. And when they buy junk, and it breaks, and they're really sad because it breaks, that is a really great learning opportunity. So all of these times when things go awry, just look at that as opportunities for you to learn more and more about your child, also for them to learn about the world. And so just to be comforting and loving and say, yeah, I know, baby, um, not all toys are made to last very long. 
Sometimes toys that cost a little bit more money will last longer, but that might mean you have to save up. So we'll get there. It's going to be okay. Um, I want to read some of the comments because I can see y'all are talking and this is good stuff. Pam says, completely unrelated comment. Love your necklace. Ah! We have a stonework store that makes similar things. Oh my goodness. How cool is that? In your town? I would love to hear about that. I love like um, natural stone jewelry. Um, so thank you. I appreciate that. Um, Debbie's reminding me, Fruits of Spirits. Yes, I like the idea. What a good plan to teach the concept, the shopping concept. Very good. Very good. Very good. Oh, you know, um, since we're here, and there's a few of us still here, um, I've, there's been, this is absolutely unrelated, not related at all to any of this, but I have just felt a sense of heaviness and darkness um, in the world, and it led me to pull up information and some statistics, and there's a couple of things that I read that I want to share with you guys. Um... The second leading cause of death for children under the age of two is homicide. The second leading cause of death for people ages 13 to 35 is suicide. The third is homicide. That's the power of darkness in our world speaking through statistics. I know that we get on here and we try to crack codes to try to help you guys function in your day-to-day -day life with your children who come from tough places. When I tell you that the relationship is more important to the, than the task, that's why I say it. Children who have experienced early life trauma are four times more likely to consider suicide. So if it's already the second leading cause of death for people who are 13 to 35, that means our babies are at very high risk. Yeah, it's important that they learn how to take care of their house and it's important that they learn how to have relationships. Them feeling your love is so much more important than how they take out the trash, how their bed looks, or whether or not they get the dishes done. It's so much more important than whether or not they make A's and B's on their report cards. It's so much more important than whether or not they made the team. There's so many things that are so much more important for our children to feel from us than our disappointment in their lack of perfection. We are all human. We are raising children who have already, already experienced darkness in their lives. So it is so important above everything else. It's so important for them to feel the love that we have for them. It is so important for us to let go of all these things that are not that important. We can make, we can turn the socks into the living room into life and death. Literally. Let it go. It's not that important. Them feeling the love that we have for them is the most important thing that you can give to your children. Everything else will come from that. 
Everything else will grow from it. It may not grow from it right here under your roof. It may not grow from it in the next year, but I'm promising you those seeds of love, Brian calls them love weed seeds. And we call them that because weeds will grow. Weeds grow. Weeds grow all over the place. So you scatter those love weed seeds out all over the place. You cannot love your children too much. You cannot love on them too much. Let the love you have from them shine from your eyes. Let it radiate from your heart on those tough, tough days. And I know sometimes, especially when you have lots of littles, I know sometimes it feels like just chaos. It feels like they're, you know, sometimes they fight each other because they're, they're so fearful that there's not enough. They come from a place of lack. They come from a place of lack and we have to remind them that they are now in the place of plenty. There's plenty of love. There's plenty of back rubs. The funny thing about love, the more we spread it, the more it grows. It's one of the most amazing, amazing elements that there is known to mankind that the more we share it, the more it grows. So I want to encourage you guys. I just want to encourage you guys to let a lot of the stuff go. A lot of the task oriented, it's going to come. It's going to come, but it's going to come better. It's going to come easier when it's growing out of a place that love lives. So remember, at any given moment, we can act out of the blueprints of stress and fear and overwhelm, of course. But we can take one to two to three to 10 to 30 deep breaths and we can choose love. And sometimes that looks like coming back and saying to your children, I'm sorry I spewed my stress all over you. I was trying to do too much. Can we just lay here for a minute and snuggle together so I can remember how much we all love each other because I love you so much. You didn't deserve that. Sometimes that's what it looks like. Thank you guys. I know you all, I know you all strive day in and day out to help your babies feel that love. I know you do. And I appreciate you so much. I appreciate all that you do for your children. Much love to you all. We'll see you guys tomorrow.